0: Let me also say uh, Happy Mother's Day. Um, I think you can hear a bit of a nervousness in my voice, if you, uh, with the the passage this morning. Um, what I love about um, expository preaching is that you have to preach the next verse um, during the week, uh, and even yesterday I tried to think of ways of escaping. Uh, this text, but it seemed as though it had grabbed me, by, grabbed me by the collar, and it was saying to me, preach me, preach me. Um, Mark chapter 10, looking at verse 1 up until verse 12, Paul says to the elders in Ephesus that he has declared the whole counsel of God, meaning that there are things that he uh, he didn't avoid Uh, speaking about anything. And so when we go through God's word, we we shouldn't avoid speaking about anything. Even if it um, puts a lump on our throat when we speak about it, we should speak about it. Mark chapter 10, verse 1 up until verse 12, and the title for today's sermon is What God Has Joined Together. What God Has Joined Together together let us take this time and present it to the lord shall we indeed lord your word is the word that gives us life the word that shapes us that skill us for christian living help us lord to honor you as we draw near to you to hear what you have to say on this subject help us Lord and help me to speak your truth clearly, um, to speak without fear, to speak O Lord with conviction that your name will be honoured in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Amen. This morning it's uh, my responsibility to preach on a difficult and controversial topic the topic of divorce and I accept that, that challenge uh, because I believe it's very important and relevant uh, subject for us for all of us to consider and it is necessary um, that as we draw near we consider what the word of God has to say about the subject we are all aware that um, many of uh, us in one way or another Have been touched by it We know someone um, We probably have experienced it firsthand, and And so on I want to approach the topic by asking a series of questions um, As we, 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 we Look at um, The subject First I'll ask the first question And then um, I'll ask the first two questions And go through them And then we'll read the text uh, this morning First what does God think of divorce. What does God think of divorce? Well, according to the prophet Malachi, he hates it, right? But I hasten to add that he doesn't hate those who suffer divorce. God hates divorce, but he doesn't even forbid all divorce. God hates divorce, but divorce is by no means the only thing he hates, right? There's a list of actions and attitudes the Bible specifically says that God hates. That includes things that are sadly exhibited by every one of us. Now the second question I want to ask this morning, why does God hate divorce? Well he hates it because divorce violates his plan, uh, the plan of marriage uh, for his highest creation which is mankind. He hates divorce because divorce involves the breaking of a covenant and and covenants are very important to God he is a promise keeper isn't he he's not a promise breaker he hates divorce because he loves people and doesn't want them to suffer the pain that divorce inevitably produces God hates divorce because he loves children and children are devastated by divorce Our scripture text today is one of the key passages in the Bible on divorce. We are going to examine it carefully, but we are not going to limit ourselves to this passage alone. If you wish to know what the Bible teaches on some topics, it is important to look at all that it teaches. One gospel writer may record one part of what Jesus says, and that is clearly the case here in Mark chapter 10. Mark records uh, for us um, of Jesus' words uh, here, as he records Jesus' words, they are true, right? But he doesn't tell us all that Jesus said about the subject. So turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verse 1 to 12. And if you are able um, to open your Bibles, uh, open your Bibles or scroll to your Bibles for some of you have uh, moved with technology uh, to mark chapter 10. Just um, consider these words and, 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 and carefully listen as we hear God's word. I read from the ESV, hear God's word. And he left, uh, which is Jesus, he, and Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in in order to test him. um, uh, They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one; they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we find that Jesus has departed from Galilee in the north and is now in Judea, the southern part of Palestine, and is ministering and teaching on both sides of the Jordan. He doesn't bring up the topic of divorce. The, the Pharisees actually do. And they don't bring it up in order to learn from him. I, I just want you to remember that, that their intention is not to learn or gain knowledge about this topic. They bring it up to test him, to trip him up. The religious scene in that day was divided primarily in two camps. There were the legalistic, fundamentalist, um, Uh, and the wishy-washy liberals, right? The Pharisees represented the fundamentalists with their long list of rules and, and restrictions. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the liberal elite. But by this time in his ministry, both groups viewed Jesus as a threat to their power and influence. The Pharisees knew that divorce was a controversial topic, and that no matter how Jesus responded to their question, he would make someone angry. That was all they seemed to care about at this point. So they ask him, they come to him and ask him the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In, in, in the parallel passage in the book of Matthew, their question is presented in a fuller form. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any course. They aren't simply asking whether divorce is ever lawful, but rather whether it is is always lawful. In essence, that's what the liberals believed at this time. And and, and, and brothers and sisters, that's really similar to where we are today in our culture, right? This idea of a no-fault divorce, that you can divorce for any reason under the sun. In fact, um, there was a Jewish uh, rabbi called Hillel, and uh, he thought that you could divorce for any reason that you, you can come up with. Right? If your wife is, uh, does not let, have long hair, you can uh, decide to divorce her. If she bans the food, you can decide to dismiss and divorce her. If she is, if you meet someone who is actually more beautiful than your wife, you can come home and say, uh, you have to go. You know, you, 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 you could make up all kinds of reasons under the sun so we we live in that culture as well just people just willy-nilly divorcing and as he often does jesus answers a question with a question he says what did moses command you the pharisees professed undying devotion to the law of moses so it's a very relevant question if you think about it they they respond by saying Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Since Moses was viewed as the author of the entire first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, they should have gone to the early chapters of Genesis where God's position on marriage is clearly stated. Where Genesis chapter 2 says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh and that's explicit isn't it it's clear instead they appeal to a rather obscure passage in Deuteronomy and in the process distort the entire point Moses is making there what Moses taught in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is that if a man gives his wife a certificate of divorce and sends her away and if she subsequently marries another man and if the second marriage doesn't work out for her then the man cannot take back his wife in other words, the, the point is clearly that anyone, even considering a divorce, should be very cautious because it's a final decision. There, there can be no, uh, there, there, there are no musical chairs when it comes to, to, to marriage, right? In marriage, there are no musical chairs. That's, a, that's very different from giving blanket approval to a divorce. And Jesus calls the Pharisees on it, He takes them back to the beginning. To God's original plan. He, it was simple. One man, one woman, united in marriage, studying a new family unit, becoming one flesh and inseparable. That was God's intent and anything else is less than ideal. If Moses made any allowance for divorce, it was an accommodation for their hardness of heart. Now when the teaching session was over, the disciples were alone with Jesus they come to him and ask him to explain further what he had to say about divorce. So Jesus gives them the following summary in chapter 10, verse 11 and and, and 12. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, Please note that Jesus' words here are not so much an explicit prohibition of, of divorce as they are a prohibition of remarriage after divorce and since in in the vast majority of cases people do indeed remarry after divorce it is important that we understand first why Jesus calls remarriage adultery here and second whether there are any exceptions right? cases in which uh, remarriage is not considered adultery now let's go to the third question um, of our text why does jesus say the marriage after divorce constitutes adultery well why does jesus say that well the, the best way i know to explain this is to go back to the basics uh, basically it takes two things to establish a marriage in god's sight right um, first there must be a public commitment to live together uh, generally this is made in our culture um, through Lobola or a ceremony of some kind right um, for, for, for uh, other cultures it will be uh, families uh, coming together agreeing that these two people are getting married and then there will be a ceremony in which they are declared uh, married second, the marriage must be consummated and that is the two become one flesh through sexual intimacy, uh, both are necessary aren't they on the other hand I must address this as well. We live in a culture of casual hookups where uh, people just, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hookup culture. They hook up, shake up, and then, um, um, they, you know, go, go um, um, their separate ways. Hookup, uh, casual hookups are not marriages. The, the, the two individuals might participate in an activity that demonstrates oneness, uh, oneness, Uh, But without a public commitment to live together, that one flesh doesn't constitute a marriage, but rather fornication in God's sight. It dishonors and disregards God. Well, if I'm correct that both of these are necessary to constitute a marriage in God's sight, I submit to you that it takes the breaking of both to end a marriage in God's eyes the breaking of the public commitment to live together is done through a divorce decree which is essentially a public commitment to separate that the breaking of the one flesh principle happens when one of the partners becomes sexually involved outside the marriage either before the uh, divorce or after it now uh, not until both happen is a marriage truly dissolved a divorce decree does not by itself end a marriage. It may in the eyes of the government, uh, but not in the eyes of God. Uh, Do you hear the difference there? Right? Uh, But by the same token, a sexual relationship outside the the marriage does not by itself end the marriage either. It damages the marriage, yes it does, for sure. But it does not end it automatically. If the innocent partner chooses to forgive and they reconcile, the marriage continues in the eyes of God. Now let's turn to what Jesus tells his disciples here in Mark chapter 10. He says if a couple divorces, perhaps because they think they have irreconcilable differences, they are divorced in the eyes of the state but not in the eyes of God. Therefore, if one of them remarries and becomes one flesh with another person, that is an act of adultery because he or she is still married in the original spouse to the original spouse in the eyes of God. I think that raises another very important question. Right? Does Jesus offer any exceptions? Does Jesus offer any exceptions? Well, none are mentioned here in Mark chapter 10. But in the Gospel of Matthew, he does mention an exception, and he does so twice, in, in in Matthew chapter five, verse thirty-one to thirty-two. Maybe we can have it on the screen. Matthew chapter five, verse thirty-one to thirty-two. Uh, look at what he says. He said it, it was it was it was also said. Uh, this is in the law of Moses. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus takes pains to uncover the true meaning of the law. What Jesus Christ is doing in the, mount, in the Sermon on the Mount is not contradicting the law. In fact, he is removing misconceptions that were, were laid there by the, the ones who had propped themselves up as teachers of the law, but they were actually distorting the law. Jesus would actually say something like this, Moses said such and such, but I say to you, and then Jesus goes on to correct their distortion of Moses' intent. His teaching here is essentially the same as in Mark chapter 10 but for one major difference. Matthew mentions an exception to the no divorce, no remarriage rule. He says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. In other words, if one spouse has been guilty of sexual immorality then divorce is not forbidden and presumably remarriage by the innocent partner does not constitute adultery. Now this, t- this makes perfect logical sense it's, it's, it, it, if we go back to our analysis of the two things needed to, to end a marriage in God's sight, right? A public commitment to separate, this is a divorce decree and the breaking of the one flesh principles through sexual sin. If adultery occurs during the marriage and is the basis for a subsequent uh, divorce decree, then the marriage is over in God's sight that the person is no longer married and therefore remarriage will not be an act of adultery in this case whether it is wise to remarry um, you know in in this case um, it, 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 you know we would have to consider it but it is still not sinful now, now now the sermon on the mount is not the only place this exception is mentioned it's also mentioned in Matthew chapter 19 verse 3 to 9 we, we have a record of the very same teaching actually this is a parallel text of mark which uh, uh, um, of, of the teaching event in mark chapter 10 but matthew adds something that mark leaves out here look at mark matthew chapter 19 verse 3 to, to 9 and pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. They said to him, Why then did Jesus command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of, the, of, of your hardness of heart, be, Uh, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so and I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery there are several minor differences between uh, the Matthew account and the Luke account but the major difference comes there at the end where Matthew has the exception of sexual um, immorality right he 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 says that within in that passage, the exception is when there is sexual immorality. This I think raises uh, the inevitable question, right? It raises another question that we need to consider: What does Matthew? Why does Matthew record Jesus's words one way and Mark another? Is there an exception, or isn't there an exception? Why are they giving different, uh, or why is, I shouldn't say different accounts, why is, 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 is Mark leaving out that part and Matthew adding it there? Well, there are some theologians who are convinced that divorce is always sinful and remarriage is always sinful. That they go to great lengths to explain away Moses's accept- uh, Matthew's exception here um, by appealing to dispensational distinctions and, and offering complicated arguments about Matthew being a Jewish gospel which doesn't apply to the church. I don't have time to refute those arguments today, but suffice it to say, I believe they are without merit. In other words, they don't hold water. They are not strong enough and they are not even supported by the text itself. It seems far simpler and more honest with the text to simply say that Mark abbreviated his account of Jesus' teaching. Right? Remember when we um, um, had the introduction, when we started this series, we, we noticed that, that uh, Mark is actually fast-paced and, and he actually um, tells the stories not in, 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 in as much detail as the other gospel writers do. Right? It's a fast-paced gospel. In fact, um, Matthew is trying to show us, um, because he's writing to a Roman um, uh, uh, context. Uh, remember that uh, I'm not digressing. Remember, the 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 Romans um, had all these, uh, you know, heroes. Your Hercules, your um, whatever. And, and so for them, you know, they, they they looked at these people as their gods in 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 a way. And so. Mark, when he writes, well, on the account, of, on, on the testimony of Peter, when he writes this gospel, he he writes it so much like a movie in a way. It's fast-paced. It, it's very fast. And he wants to show, at the end of the day, this Jesus who is greater than the, their so-called gods. Right? And, and, and what will shock them at the end of the day is that this Jesus actually dies because they had no... no No, um, you know, concept of a dying god in in their imagination, but again, amazingly, he rises from the dead. In fact, he's the ultimate hero. Let's go back to to that text. So, we we, we need to read it as plainly as possible in in his entire gospel. Mark's gospel is, the length, is, is, is half the length of, of Matthew's gospel. He leaves out the Sermon on the Mount almost entirely. And he leaves out a number of details that Matthew includes in his record and in this teaching of Jesus in Judea. Mark gives us the overall principle that divorce leads to adultery, which is certainly true most of the time. But he ignores the exception perhaps because he wanted his audience to focus on the principle rather than on the exceptions. So allow me to summarize where we have come from uh, so far. Jesus contradicts the liberal view that divorce is permissible virtually for any reason, as long as a certificate of divorce is granted. The, the, the uh, uh, the, The reason it is not permissible is that divorce breaks a covenant between two individuals, a covenant which God commanded that should not be broken, or forsaken. Furthermore, divorce leads to adultery when people who have been divorced for reasons other than unfaithfulness by their spouse choose to remarry, which they usually do. I must also add that in both uh, Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19, the emphasis uh, of Jesus' teaching is not on the exception, but on the principle, right? Even with The exception. Jesus leaves us with a very restrictive position on divorce. His teaching makes a scandal of the no fault divorce uh, laws in our country. It makes a scandal of the casual attitude many uh, professing Christians take toward divorce. Yet at the same time, we need to be careful that we not become more restrictive than Scripture itself. Does that make sense? We as evangelicals often we, we, we tend to to be conservative on most theological issues and I must say in, in South Africa more the, the reformed uh, bent evangelical. but if we are not careful, we, we, we can be more concert, conservative than God himself. The, the fact is Jesus did not forbid all divorce and all remarriage, and the apostle paul seems to add another exception for when an unbeliever wants out of the marriage for religious reasons. We will not handle that uh, this morning for the sake of time, but another question begs to be answered as we struggle with this difficult issue. If there is an exception for sexual immorality, what kinds of behavior qualify? Right? What kinds of behavior qualify? Well, the term that Jesus uses for sexual immorality here is one word in the in the original Greek. It is the word "ponia." It is a broad term that describes uh, a variety of sexual uh, sins. It can refer to fornication, adultery, bestiality, incest, or homosexual acts, uh, chronic exhibitionism, uh, and I would define it as any sexual sin which violates the one-flesh integrity of a marriage. Now, we have already established that ponia does not by itself automatically end a a marriage. It does not require the innocent spouse to file for divorce, it is not automatic, in fact, it is not always the first option. Right? Thankfully, many people who have been sinned against in a marriage by the sexual unfaithfulness of their spouse have forgiven their partner and have experienced restoration for or of wonderful intimacy a testimony to the grace of God. But if sexual sin is persistent and unrepentant to the point that it degrades the relationship and threatens the physical, emotional and spiritual health of the spouse God allows the innocent partner to file for divorce and end the marriage. Furthermore I believe that allows that person to enter a new marriage without committing adultery since the previous marriage has ended, not only in the eyes of the government, the eyes of the state but also in the eyes of God my final question this morning is this what if you have suffered divorce or even initiated what do you do now well most divorced people are not despicable scoundrels Right? they are victims and victims of broken homes because um, uh, you know broken homes, homes themselves and and they are family of origin, victims of Satan's lies and particularly the myth of the greener grass right that the grass is greener on the other side the victims of ignorance concerning God's principles, victims of a lack of resources to deal with problems in their marriages victims of a spouse who refuses to work on the marriage. They don't want a divorce. They hate the thought of being divorced. They just don't know any way out of the trap in which they find themselves. When I call these people uh, victims, of course, I'm not seeking to absolve them entirely of responsibility for their situation. Many have made bad decisions somewhere along the way which contributed something to the collapse of their marriages but I am trying to enter into their pain and grant the fact that in most cases this was not a willful act of rebellion toward God. In fact, so convinced am I of the pain and trauma that divorce produces that I have taken out of my vocabulary the term divorcee. I speak only of one who has suffered divorce. I want to suggest several possible courses of action for for those who find themselves in the inevitable position of having suffered divorce. Not every one of, of these will apply in each case, but at least one should apply in every case. First of all, repent if your sin contributed significantly to your divorce. If you were unfaithful to your spouse, confess that fully and completely to the Lord, don't excuse it. Don't blame your former spouse for it. Come clean with your responsibility and seek the forgiveness and healing that God promises to those who own their sin. Second, forgive the spouse who sinned against you. It may be too late to reconcile because um, sometimes both of you um, may have already been remarried or one, of, one has uh, gotten remarried, but it is never too late to forgive. Lack of forgiveness has the one who refuses to forgive more than the one who is unforgiven. Maybe you need to forgive your parents for messing up your childhood through divorce as well. Maybe you need to forgive your son or daughter for the pain brought about um, the whole family through their divorce. Third, consider reconciliation if that is still an option. Right? If neither of you uh, nor your divorced spouse has remarried you, there's still um, uh, consideration of of reconciliation fourth, move on move on divorce is devastating to most people right? but you cannot allow it to destroy you you cannot allow it to define to be a crown of shame that you wear God has not called you to shame God has called you to freedom and uh, when something like that has happened and there is no opportunity or chance for reconciliation move on you are loved by God you are precious in the sight of God where when we sing that song my worth is not in what I own there's a line where we say two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness my unworthiness I have nothing in myself to save me, my worth, I am made in God's image, I am his child through the redemption brought about by the death of Christ on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. I wish to close by reading some profound comments by Craig Kinner, a Baptist seminary professor whose scholarship I've come to appreciate very much at the end of his book on this topic he writes the following quotation if you'd like the book just uh, let me know, I don't have a copy I'll just, just give you the title of the book <laughs> although he says, he says in, in, in his book although I will still maintain that we must do everything possible to hold together a marriage until it is clear that one spouse is bent on dissolving it that there are circumstances where separation and indeed divorce is necessary some ivory tower theologians who spend their time picking apart a grammar, the grammar of New Testament texts without regard to the situation it addressed or the situations with which pastors must grapple today, would do well to give attention to texts like these. Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. If you have understood what Scripture says, I want mercy and not sacrifice, you, would have, con- you have not condemned the innocent. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in, who believe in me to stumble, it would have been better for him to have had a millstone suspended from his neck and to have been cast into the open sea. Matthew chapter 23 verse 4. They, this is the scribes and the Pharisees, bind together heavy loads and lay them on other people's shoulders and they themselves won't even push the loads with their finger. Divorce is wrong, he continues to say, because it violates a covenant of permanent love made before God to another person made in God's image. Condemning the innocent party in a divorce is wrong because it despises the righteousness of Christ and oppresses the, the person who has already experienced the deepest rejection possible. Rejecting the guilty party or parties in a divorce once they have repented is wrong because it is a denial of the only forgiveness any of us can have before God. Jesus' message has uh, to to everyone is plain enough here. To those contemplating divorce, don't. To those inclined to condemn without knowing the circumstances, don't. To those near a prospective Christian divorce, offer yourself as humble agents of reconciliation and healing. To those who have repented and made restitution in so far as possible for a sinful choice, trust his forgiveness. To those upon whom dissolution of marriage forced itself without invitation, be healed by God's grace and dare to stand for your freedom in Christ, which no one has the authority to take away from you. And whether his call after the divorce proves to be singleness or marriage, make your life a life of prayer that will minister to all believers with whom you have relationships, harboring no bitterness against your former spouse or against the church whose fear of human pain often overshadows, uh, overshadows its willingness to heal it. Let us take this time and pray. Father, I pray that you would resurrect the dead or dying marriages in our church. I pray for those who have lost a spouse and grieve and loneliness. I pray for those who wish to be married but have not found a partner. I pray for those who have suffered divorce, that they might accept your compassion, forgiveness, and healing. And I pray that all of us will flee immorality in order that Christ might be magnified in our lives. For the sake of your name and your kingdom, we pray this. Amen.